0: Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. That's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. And I, when I come to Good morning, everyone. Um, Would you join me as we continue to worship as we pray? Gracious and merciful God, we do not and we cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, which make us hungry for this heavenly food, that, Lord, it may nourish us today in ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. So last week, we learned about the divine reversal of God, how God chooses the foolish, the weak, the low, and the despised of this world and redeems them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And he does this to shame the wise, the powerful, the noble of this world, so that none of us may boast before God when we stand before him, but that as Christians, that we would only boast in the Lord. We were reminded that no one can find his way to God, no matter how wise we think we are, no matter how. No matter how powerful and noble we may think we are, and that this message, Christ crucified, is truly the wisdom and power of God for salvation—that only God can plan and that God can execute. Last Sunday, we were challenged at the end to evaluate ourselves in the areas of our lives that we may feel proud of, whether be it our intellect, our influence our finances, or even our church attendance during this COVID COVID pandemic, or whether we truly only boast in the Lord. Today, we continue where Apostle Paul left off, charging the Corinthian church to stop boasting and stop being divided, and instead boast in the Lord. Boast in God who redefined what wisdom and foolishness means. And here, in the five verses that we're going to be looking at, we see Paul's experience of coming, coming to preach the gospel to the Corinthian church when he first came, and how the way how he preached the gospel, the cross of Jesus, also conforms to the message of the cross, this divine reversal of God. Now, Apostle Paul starts the verse 1 with N-I, N-I, this using first personal pronoun to emphasize that he makes no exception of himself. Just like what he has been speaking, preaching to the Corinthian church, he belongs, he makes no exception for himself, and the message that he's been preaching to the Corinthian church in chapter 1 conforms to the way he's been living and the way he's been preaching Now, let's rewind a couple years. Apostle Paul, assuming he's writing this letter around 53 to 55 AD, a couple years back, around maybe 51 AD was when he came to visit Corinth during his second missionary journey. You can see that in Acts chapter 18. Now, he visited Athens, left Athens, and like he usually does, he visits the main capital cities, big cities that are... Just really ideal, strategic location for the spreading of the gospel. And he comes to Corinth, which is pretty amazing. It has two ports, again, just perfect for the spreading. He can, you know, If the gospel is preached there and people come to trust in Jesus, it will be an ideal location for the gospel to spread as people come and as people go. And it is in this city of Corinth that he runs into Aquila and Priscilla, a Jewish-Christian couple that he works with in planting the church. Now, Aquila and Priscilla were also tent makers, just like Apostle Paul, probably um, setting up tents during the Ismian Games. You know, uh, there are games going on, and when people come, they set up tents, and they, they made the living that way. And for the next 18 months, Apostle Paul is Corinth, teaching, preaching the gospel. And eventually, Timothy and Silas continue what he, uh, when he departs. Now, Apostle Paul speaks of proclaiming, preaching the testimony of God. Now, the word testimony reflects that Apostle Paul is a messenger. He's a witness. It's actually the same word for witness. So, uh, you may have heard the word uh, martyr um, in English language, Is this this word, um, and it reflects, you know, someone who has seen or heard or experienced. So they're just testifying what they have experienced, and it's a legal language. Before a courtroom, you would objectively describe what you saw or heard or experienced. And here is the testimony of God. It's what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ that Apostle Paul is witnessing, proclaiming. And now, in these five short verses, we see a couple of things happening. Paul emphasizes what he uh, didn't come to do and what he came to do. So we see the first, what he didn't come to do was that he didn't speak the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. This is not what he did. Um, This lofty speech and wisdom reflects both how he spoke or how people back in those days spoke, the verbal communication and the content, the knowledge, the thoughts. It's not that he didn't know how to speak eloquently or he lacked the intelligence or the knowledge, but he chose not to speak with the kind of rhetoric, the speech that Corinthians were known to speak or with the knowledge, the wisdom that they were conversant and spoke of. Now, philosophers in those days were praised for the oratory skill, but the sophists, you might have heard uh, the word sophistry, sophists kind of took it to the next level. Sophists were known for public speaking, and they were praised and followed, especially in proportion to their ability to speak eloquently and persuasively. So, more persuasive they were, more people followed. Um, it, oftentimes, you know, they'll be meeting, gathering in a public space, they'll pick a theme or topic, and they were asked to speak. And if you spoke more convincingly, with, uh, we were able to move people, then, you know, people looked up to you and followed you, and you gained power and influence. Um, until recently, the subject of rhetoric was still offered in universities. It's only recent that you probably don't see that subject being taught Um, when Bible speaks of wisdom, um, it's describing, so we we, moving from the rhetoric, the speaking part that Apostle Paul is not utilizing to now the wisdom part. Now, when Bible speaks of wisdom, it's really describing skillful living um, that aligns with the things of God. So it's actually a, a proficient application in the way biblical principles are lived out in one's life. It reflects a Godward direction. Now, that's what Bible means when it uses the word wisdom. Now, when the Greeks, when the Corinthians use the word wisdom, this is not what they mean. When Greeks use this word wisdom, they're talking about intellectual knowledge. And intellectual knowledge was used as a leverage, as a leverage for influence and power. It became a tool for yourself. It's something that you would use to elevate yourself and make people follow you, look up to you, and even pay for your speaking oratory skill. And this is what Paul is saying. He didn't come proclaiming the gospel, the the testimony of God as a witness of what God has done with this kind of wisdom or rhetoric to to garner people's praise or gain support. Corinth was a different kind of city compared to Rome. Rome was an old city, old money, kind of aristocratic kind of um, history. Corinth, at least the Corinth that Apostle Paul comes to, is a newly established city. It's a city that's based on meritocracy, Kind of nouveau riche people didn't have old money. They just came into money because of the business, the transaction, because it was a significant port city, and people really vied and competed for power, status, and position. And if you were successful merchant trading, you know you, you garnered that kind of um, both influence and money, and people around it were uh, fighting for that. So wisdom and knowledge meant achieving power. And this is exactly what Paul is saying he didn't use. He didn't use this sort of influence or power, the kind of worldly wisdom that the Corinthians around were using. The Corinthians were tempted to abandon the message of the cross because when they went out, they heard the message, this, this uh, Hellenistic Greek understanding of wisdom that people were keen on learning, where people spoke eloquently. They thought, you know what, you only need the cross of Jesus to enter the life. You don't need it after. Now they, they thought they had something better. Cross was something that you start but didn't need to continue to build and mature in. They thought you know, they had riches, wisdom that they could go to the next level with. They were tempted to abandon the message of the cross. Because if you think about it, as Pastor Eugene has been preaching, the message of the cross in the eyes of the Hellenistic worldview wasn't really attractive, and it definitely wasn't eloquent in the way the Greek philosophers and rhetoricians spoke about. There was nothing really philosophically compelling compared to what they were hearing. In fact, it was foolishness. And maybe, and maybe some of us, or you know people, or maybe you find yourself thinking or being tempted in a similar way, where you wonder, hey, what's fashionable these days at church? What, is, what are people getting into church? What is the latest kind of movement in churches so that maybe I can kind of belong in that modern Contemporary, in-vogue movement. It's a dangerous way of thinking. But we're not immune. You and I are not immune because now we have more access, more books. Internet has more medium, more availability to consume than we have ever before. God's view of power, however, is upside down. God is far more interested in the weak, of the low, reversing the order. Greeks were thinking, hey, if I'm wise, if I have influence, I can gain access to that kind of thing. But that's not the way God operates. God shows Christ crucified. That's his testimony, that's his work. And his plan. So we know how Apostle Paul didn't come. He didn't come with the, this kind of wisdom or eloquence. But in verse 2, we, we, we see that, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In the Corinthian church, in the Corinthians around, they're trying to make a case of how much they know. Show off, right? so that people look at them and say, wow, look what he knows. Look at what she knows. But here, Apostle Paul is saying, you know what? I decided to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. He limits his knowledge to the crux of the gospel. He's not interested in winning admiration or popularity. He wants them to hear what God has planned and what God has executed in the cross. Nothing but Christ and Him crucified. The most offensive dimension of the gospel, which really opposes our human arrogance, especially goes against this kind of meritocracy of The culture of Corinth where people are so used to gaining that kind of influence, power, prestige by information, knowledge, expertise. We live in the same day. We get certified. We study so that we get acknowledged. We'll have that influence. The day and age that we live in is not any different than the day of Corinth when Apostle Paul was preaching, and even as he is writing this letter. You know, when you look at the word crucified, this is a perfect passive participle in the original language. So if it's a perfect tense here as a participle, it describes an action um, completed in the past. However, it affects continued effect to the present. Complete in the past but its effect continues into the present. There's a continuity between what God did in the cross and what that cross should be doing in the followers. And Paul is essentially saying that in identifying with Jesus Christ, that cross is not canceled out with the resurrection. The resurrection, the risen Christ, is only possible with the crucified Jesus. You may have heard of people saying, when describing what is the Christian message, it's about having full life, fullness of life. Christ died and paid for our sins, so we have this full, abundant life. Well, that full abundant life is often not depicted with the cross at the center. Because Christ didn't die so that we may have this wealthy, full, kingly life on this earth. If, in fact, to those who come after him, he, he bidded people to die to ourselves, pick up the cross. Cross is not merely an event of the past, but it's a way of life. It's the point. If you and I say we trust in Jesus of this crucifixion, then our modus of operandi, the way we are to live our life, should reflect how Jesus died on the cross. It's not; cross is not just a substitution, but it's a place of our daily execution where we die to ourselves, die to the the pride, our desire to elevate ourselves, show what we know to move up in this kind of day and age of meritocracy. The way we are to live needs to conform to the cross. And if we are preaching, if we are proclaiming, as Christians, if you and I are proclaiming Christ crucified, that means, as, as we are proclaiming the testimony of God, what God has done, right? That means only God can be praised because the emphasis in what God has done, not what you and I have done, we can't boast. And in addition, you know what it discloses? It shows that we are depraved totally depraved. And that you have to get to our sinful nature because the cross deals with our sin. You can't talk about Jesus. You can't be a real Christian if you don't get the cross of Christ. For anyone to preach a Christian message, even if they cite a verse in the Bible, if it doesn't come to, lead to, ends up in some way with the cross where it reveals our sinful nature and our sins and how Christ has overcome it, setting us free, then it's not a Christian message. The point is the message of what God has done. And the messenger is simply called to testify, step aside, so that the message gets proclaimed. And any time the messenger gets in the way, if the way the messenger speaks of the message goes against the message, then there's a problem. If the messenger gets greater attention than the message, then there's a problem. And Apostle Paul is not interested in using the, I mean, he is probably more trained and able and capable to engage any sort of philosophical arguments if he wanted to. But he chose not to, because he didn't want people to come to God in a way so at the end, they might have gained intellectual knowledge, wisdom of the world, but leave out, not have salvation. T.A. Carson tells a story uh, way back of about this Egyptian believer that he knew with this amazing oratory skill. Um, This man um, was a uh, capable speaker in Arabic. And he he says that there are two levels of um, Arabic, just like in any language, right? Um, There's kind of the street Arabic, um, where people can just speak, depending on different region. And there is the high or literary Arabic. And um, kind of the kind of Arabic you'll see in good um, Arabic literature and sort as well as in good oral um, orations, excuse me. Now, this Egyptian Christian was a journalist, and he he was widely read and just really articulate. And um, in turning to Christ, he felt called to ministry, so he abandoned journalism, and he began preaching, speaking, and his congregation grew, and it grew so much. And people came, attended his church, and they really enjoyed listening to his orations. People gathered. They were fascinated with the way he spoke. And after a while, the preacher became troubled because people seemed far more interested in his Arabic oration than in Jesus Christ himself. And after much soul-searching, You know what he decided to do? He decided to switch to the more colloquial Arabic, which wouldn't impress people as much. And his main reason, you know what? Was because he wanted to convey the message of the cross. And his rhetoric, his oration, his ability to speak well, um, basically got in the way of Jesus Christ. He wanted a smaller crowd who would come to hear the gospel than a larger crowd who would come because they're impressed with his ability to articulate, speak, grasp people, and woo them. He probably wasn't even doing that intentionally. Anything and everything that gets in the way of the message Needs to be removed. That's what Apostle Paul is saying in these short five verses. Can you imagine a church now where the church is growing and growing, and a pastor is evaluating because it's convicted by the gospel? Comes to First uh, Corinthians chapter two and decides, you know what? People are coming here for the wrong reason. I need to change how I speak. In fact there's a greater temptation to do the other way, right? It's like, what would bring people in? And once people come in, then... But that's not how gospel is to be preached. And that's not how we are to proclaim, share the testimony of God to those that we don't know. Ultimately, it's a question of who is Jesus. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. You can't think of Jesus without his crucifixion. You can't just talk about Jesus as a great teacher. My grandfather did. You can't just think about Jesus as a moral example. A lot of people have done in history. You can't think of him as a great leader alone because at the heart of his identity is his crucifixion. That's what he came to do. That was God's plan. All of the scriptures leads up to that. And the climax is in the gospel account with his crucifixion and the resurrection this heavenly wisdom from above, this divine reversal that God has orchestrated in his son's crucifixion. This is what Paul did for 18 months while he was in Corinth, and he was saying this. Look, what I'm telling you about this great reversal of God, that God chooses the weak, the humble, the poor, and that God doesn't use, God's not interested in what we think we have. But that the cross of Christ is preached both in content and the manner that reflects what the gospel is about. You know, many Jews and Gentiles accused Christians in the early church history of worshiping a dead man because early church focused so much on the death of Jesus on the cross. But what a shame today when you listen to a preacher speaking about feeling good, being good, but there is no cross. There's no mention of sin. There is just flattery to the ear. You leave listening, feeling better, but it's vacuous and empty. And that's exactly what Paul doesn't want. He'd rather have people understand the gospel and receive it for what it truly is. Then feel great, be flattered, hear people praising him as a speaker. None of that. And verse 3, repeats, and I again, right? The emphatic, and I. This is how he came. We, we know how he didn't come. We saw how he did come. And again, we see how he came. He came and I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the rival preachers of Corinth speaks of Apostle Paul this way. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Apostle Paul did not fit the popular stereotype of a dynamic orator. And I think because he held back. Because message of cross cannot be spoken triumphantly with that kind of typical power because it would go against the message itself. He had to be consistent. The way he spoke the message had to comport with how he spoke. Paul held back. He deliberately presented himself, not with confidence, not with strength or wisdom, but like the cross itself, with weakness, fear, and trembling. Paul is gospel-centered, and his priorities The way he lived, the way he ministered, reflected this modus of operandi, the cross itself. How preposterous would it be to adopt a style of ministry that is triumphalistic if you're preaching the cross? How preposterous or Foolish would it be to adopt a style of ministry to impress or to calculate win and accolades. That's the exact opposite of the cross. Or even to coerce, manipulate. Rhetoricians did this all the time. And Paul knew that when he's proclaiming the testimony of God, he couldn't have any of that. Apostle Paul in the second letter of Corinthian, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 um, again shows how he came in weakness. In verses 9, second half of 9 and verse 10 it reads, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak... Then I am strong. This is the testimony of a man who's been captured by the cross. His life, not just the message, not just the way he spoke the message, but also how he lived, comported to the cross. For 18 months, Apostle Paul preached. Can you imagine in this city of Corinth where you go out on the street and people are vying for attention? They're trying to speak eloquently and, you know, people are trying to jockey for position. And here, Apostle Paul, do you know what he's doing for a living to support himself? He's a tent maker, just like Aquila and Priscilla. And you know what? That's one of the lowest jobs. That's something a slave would do. When someone would look at Apostle Paul and hear the message he is saying— about the cross and Jesus Christ, and he's also living as a tent maker, there's no respect for him in a worldly sense. He's saying something that is foolish. He's living in a way that is so demeaning. But you see this alignment of the way he lived with the message he preached and the way he preached it. When speaking about speaking with fear and trembling, I don't think this is talking about like mentally timid or physically shaking. Because you know what? Apostle Paul, he was bold when he lived, he was bold when he preached. He didn't fear death. This isn't like psychological fear and trembling, but as we see in other passages, this is about knowing what's at stake. He takes the gospel seriously, and he knows that he can't just handle it with this kind of arrogance, but humbly knowing that eternity is at stake. So he treats the message with fear and trembling before God, before God, not before people, before God. In the latter half of, um, in in verse 4, we see Apostle Paul again, um, describing how he didn't come, how he didn't come preaching uh, with this kind of plausible words of wisdom, this speech and message, the way he spoke again, and the message he brought, the testimony of God, what God had did, had done on the cross, right? So he, he's not interested, as I said before, about this kind of theatrics of calculating, convincing, using techniques and manipulation, how to evoke a certain reaction, grab people's attention. Not interested. Um, And I think as Christians, um, when we listen to people who are trying to manipulate, uh, we need to take heed and be warned. Um, I I think a lot of us, if if you grew up in, in the church, you probably attended a retreat at least once in your life, probably more than once. A a, a convention or revival or these kind of gatherings. Imagine you attended one of these things where the organizers were committed to not manipulating the attendees, especially if you're a youth group student, right? Imagine if you don't schedule so much that kids are lacking sleep, so that whatever decision they come to make won't be made in in midst of just like they don't have the stamina, so they're just passing out kind of thing, or imagine if the speakers or the organizers don't try to corner people emotionally to force a response so that at the end we can say, so many people did this or responded this way. What if we don't shame people to get a response or embarrass people for a response, but remove any of that so that people can be as clearly thinking and objective so that the thinking and the decision that they make is not coerced or manipulated at all, so that the decision is truly a life-changing decision, not at the spur of the moment. So 24 hours later, they're like, what did I do? Apostle Paul is interested in true repentance, not emotional appeal or response of that nature. So as Apostle Paul doesn't come with this kind of worldly wisdom or worldly rhetoric, but comes humbly with the message Christ crucified, God responds. God responds to him with demonstration of the Spirit and power. Paul didn't use any fancy devices or wisdom from the, uh, you know, The Corinthian context, but he speaks the truth of the gospel, of what God planned and what God did in the cross. People are not um, impressed at all, but the fact that they responded demonstrates that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. No coercion, simple presentation, and God works to bring demonstration. This word demonstration is also another legal term Kind of a, it it reveals kind of this irrefutable evidence offered in the court. So the irrefutable evidence is the work of the Spirit and the power of God. The fact that the Corinthians accepted this gospel, despite the lack of all the wisdom and rhetoric, reveals that it's God, His Holy Spirit, who worked to bring these people to Himself. So at the end, that no one can boast. Who can boast about themselves? If you can boast, you can only boast in the Lord. Now, all of this. Wh- why did Paul do this? Why is Paul saying this? Why is Paul saying, "I came to you not this way, but I came to you this way, um, with the the message of"? You know, Christ crucified. Why? So that, as we see in verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but what? In the power of God. Throughout chapter 1, we see this tendency of the Corinthians to boast in themselves, um, thinking too highly because of themselves because they're not looking at the cross. He wants them to rest in the power of God. And what is the power of God? It is what? Christ crucified. In verse 18, we see the language of power of God uh, beginning, and then verse 5 of chapter 2, it kind of sandwiches it, right? Um, That they may not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God is what verse 5 ends with. And in the beginning of verse 18, we see this Um, tendency for human well the Corinthian church's infatuation with human wisdom and how God wants them to focus on the power of God if you and I are serious about reaching out to those who don't know Jesus and you're interested in what people are thinking I am, I think I'm guilty of this like I love to talk to people about like apologetic subject matter Like, ask people, hey, so, you know, if you could sit with Jesus, what would you want to ask him kind of thing? And oftentimes, these are, like, really, like, out there kind of questions. And I just wanted to, like, just hear what they are questioning and try to respond in a reasonable way, in a biblical way. But at the end, at some point, hopefully sooner than later, you got to come to the cross, We may think that we want to start with where people are, and it's hard not to, right? People have their questions. But if you don't come to the cross, then they might leave intrigued, but they're not going to come. They're not going to leave saved. As Pastor Eugene has been preaching in the previous chapter, no matter how wise we think we are, no matter the kind of questions, insightful, deep life questions we may have, if, we, if the questions we ask don't lead to the question of the cross, then it's empty. It has to get to the cross. Because as the divine reversal shows, we can't find ourselves to God we can't find ourselves to the cross. The cross, God's plan, and God's execution has to be shared and proclaimed. Let me ask us, as you talk to your friends, your neighbors, your family members about Jesus, I for one talk to my uncle... my grandpa about Jesus as teacher for the longest time because he was a teacher and he loved to just see Jesus as a teacher. But I, like C.S. Lewis, you can't just see him as a teacher. It's not enough. It's actually a misrepresentation. you got to come to the cross for it's Christ crucified. What he did on the cross now also affects us. How we share, what we share, and how we live. Would you dare to say, Maybe not in these words. Hey, friend, you're asking the wrong question. In some way, we've got to make that known. Because if you ask the wrong questions, you'll never get to the right answer. And the right answer is the cross of Christ. The Corinthian church is so consumed with the wisdom of the culture they're tempted to leave behind the cross and move to something better but Christ crucified what God did in the past affects how we are living now should challenge what it means when we think about what it means to pick up our cross and follow him in the way we live in the way we think about our thinking in the way we think about our speaking in the way we live and how we share the message, the testimony of God, to people that we say we love and care for. This is what the Bible has been building up to. This is what Apostle Paul has been preaching for those 18 months. This is what he's saying, challenging the Corinthian Christians to come back to, to rest, rest in the power of God. Christ crucified brothers and sisters apostle Paul knew he knew what the Corinthians wanted to listen he knew what would tickle their ears but he chose not to do with that he wanted true converts true believers he was interested only being a true witness and if he got in the way he knew he had to move aside anything and everything Brothers and sisters, how, do, how, how does our life conform or comport to the cross? Not just the message, not just the way we speak, that needs to also conform, right? Because that's the whole point. But how, the, how does our living conform or comport to the cross of Christ? Is it truly the, the modus of operandi that how we live is fundamentally formed and conformed? by the cross so that we may not boast of the wisdom of the world, but if we boast, we boast only in Christ and Him crucified. Let me with a couple of words before we go into prayer. Especially college students um, or those of us, you know, when God calls us to go somewhere else and we begin to look for a church, be careful when you're checking out a church, um, checking out the preaching, and listen to what you Are saying when you're saying, I'm looking for good preaching, what does that mean, good preaching? Or when you respond to someone after someone speaks, say, that was a good sermon, what does that mean? Is it really that they preached a gospel-centered expositional sermon that focused on God, or could it be that the preacher spoke that just whet your appetite, something of interest, the popular philosophies of today that's in vogue in church? Because if it is, then we need to be warned, right? Because temptation that Apostle Paul speaks of to the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago is just as real today because we also live in a culture of meritocracy where people are using knowledge, influence, and power to move up. I'm not immune. You're not immune. I have to do a lot of confessing as I was preparing, because I love to read nonfiction books, and to know things in my weakness makes me feel better, but that's simply the very thing that my soul wrestles with. Let me close with a quote from John Stott, who says, "It seems." That the only preaching God honors, and let me also replace preaching with proclaiming. It seems that the only preaching, proclaiming God honors through which his wisdom and power are expressed is a preaching or proclaiming of a man who is filled, who is willing in himself to be both the weakling and the fool. We step aside so that the message gets the attention it deserves. Christ and Him crucified. Question is this perfect pass, pass, uh, participle, what speaks of what happened, does it impact us today in the way we are called to pick up our cross and follow Him? Let's pray.